Welcome to Staying the Course. Join us as we navigate the uncompromised Word of God with Pastor Brett Peterson. How many of you have studied exactly what's going to occur after we're raptured off this planet? Now, we all believe in the rapture. We all know what the rapture is. Christ is going to come back and rescue us from the wrath that's going to be poured out on the earth. And so today we've made it to Revelation chapter 19, one of my favorites in the book of Revelation because it's the marriage supper of the Lamb, or I like to call it the toga party in heaven. <laughs> Because we are all going to get togas. It is going to be an amazing thing. Worship, the wedding, and wine, the biggest celebration the universe has ever seen is going to be after we're raptured in heaven. And it's the only place in the Bible. Did you, you know the song? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You, you know that song. Okay. Everyone in the world uses that, that phrase, hallelujah. This is the only place in the Bible it's found, in Revelation chapter 19. It's not in the Psalms, it's not anywhere else in the Bible, but Revelation chapter 19, and it's used four times there. Think about that, and that's one of the things that is universal in every language. You can sing hallelujah, and they all sing it. We'll find out what that means today as well. What's the most uh, amazing wedding you ever attended? Your own? <laughs> you better say that. Yeah, everyone's looking at their spouse saying, oh, of course, ours. Yeah. <laughs> Weddings are, are special. And believe it or not, the bride of Christ is the corporate church. Not us as individuals. We are what? Friends of Christ, joint heirs with Christ, sons and daughters of God. But the church is represented allegorically or symbolically in the Bible as the bride of Christ. And after the rapture, it's our wedding day. Everyone's dressed up. There's wine to make the heart merry. There's dancing and celebration usually. And that's exactly what happens in Jewish weddings. And that's exactly what will happen. Think about it. When we're raptured in heaven, it is going to be a celebration like no other celebration. Hopefully David will have his toga on though and will not dance before the Lord in his underwear like he did in the Old Testament. We will receive our wedding garments. Okay. And if you get caught without them, you're going to get kicked out. Yeah. And we're going to talk about what those wedding garments are. Ah, man, it, this is going to be the most amazing thing. Hallelujah, we made it to chapter 19. Let's turn there if you got your Bibles. If not, the verses will be up on the PowerPoint. Or you watching online will be able to see the verses um, on the video behind me up there. No, it's up there on the video. Right up there. You're going to see stuff. What a, oh, man, I want to do a, an animation. Who knows PowerPoint really well? Do you? Oh, okay. I want to I do a, an animation where I, like, hit something, and then it bounces around up in the, in the video. I think that would be so cool. You know, you guys are like, you're crazy. Okay. Our celebration in heaven after the rapture, the marriage supper, or literally wedding feast of the Lamb. And first, though, right after we're raptured, we all, how are you feeling? I've been praying for you. you. Yeah. I'm doing better. Good. Okay. We face the Bema Seat Judgment. How many of you have heard of that before? Okay, there's two judgments that are coming. 
One is just for the church, the bride of Christ. All of us is born again Christians. And that's the Bema seat, or some people call it the reward seat of Christ. And that's where we get our rewards. And we're going to talk about that here in a minute. It's for believers only. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. It says, We are of good courage. I say and prefer rather to be absent from the body, to be at home with the Lord. Do you have that desire? The older I get and the little aches and pains, it's like, Lord, take me home. You know, <laughs> Ooh, I, I would rather be there. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home, here on earth, in our bodies, or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment or bema seat of Christ. That's different than the judgment that everyone else is going to face at the end of the thousand-year reign. That's the white throne or glorious throne judgment. We don't, we're, we're not going to be judged there. We're, we're judged here, and only our works are judged. So that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, that sounds like it's salvation by works, but the good news is this. He clarifies it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw, or stubble, each man's work will be evident. For the day will show it, because it will be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. And here's the good news. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. This is right after the rapture. But if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as though through fire. So I want you to remember, we are saved simply by faith in Jesus Christ. Not our works, but the things we do for God after we're saved, at the judgment seat or reward seat of Christ, they'll be tested. And the good works done with good motives out of love, man, you're going to receive a reward. The bad works will burn up, but you're still saved. Does that make sense? Okay. Thank the Lord. That's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So timeline, just to put it together, the fifth seal and the last seven-year period of human history starts with the Antichrist over here confirming a covenant with many. Then we go through the seals. He enacts the mark of the beast, and you can't buy or sell without the mark, a cashless society. The fifth seal, right before uh, the midpoint, the abomination, is when Christians die for their faith. Not all, but many. Then the Antichrist goes into the rebuilt temple and proclaims himself God. The sixth seal is broken, and that's the uh, day of the Lord. I believe the rapture is there. The seventh seal, two witnesses are raised. We're raptured out, and the judgment of God begins because we're rescued from the judgment and wrath that is to come. And so Jesus takes back kingship over the earth not until the breaking of the seventh or the blowing of the seventh trumpet now who's king of the earth right now satan. satan is yeah remember when satan tempted jesus and satan took him on a high hill and showed him all the earth all the kingdoms and said if you bow down to me i'll give you the earth obviously jesus said no you bow down to no one but god the father himself but here christ takes back kingship over the earth the reason why there is evil, suffering, and bad things in the world right now is because Satan is king of this world. That's why when we're born again, it says we are strangers and aliens, and our citizenship is now in heaven, 
not on the earth. We're just ambassadors of Christ the short time we still stay on there. So he takes back the world then. Up in heaven, we have the Bema seat, and then from that reward seat, we go right into the biggest party celebration you could imagine. Do you know that when one sinner repents, what do the angels of heaven do? It says they throw a party. They celebrate. When one sinner repents, think about when all of us are up there for the marriage supper of the Lamb, it's going to be amazing. Then, after the bulls of wrath, the second coming of Christ, and the battle of Armageddon. You've all heard of that, okay? And we're going to talk about that this morning. The white throne judgment, where everyone else is judged, is at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ on this planet. And Jesus is coronated as King of Kings and Lord of Lords right after the second coming. Right now, who is King of Kings and Lord of Lords? God the Father. But then God the Father gives it to him. Now, I'm going to give you all the verses so you know exactly what I'm talking about. But this is the timeline of where we're headed this morning, just to look at it. So Revelation 19 starts with an amazing worship service. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn there, or the verses will be up on the PowerPoint. Verse 1, after these things, that's metatata in the Greek. It's used throughout the book of Revelation from chapter 4 and forward, and it's simply the linear progression of events. That's all it means. Uh, a lot of pre-trib guys try to say it means rapture, after the church age. Well, it's used throughout the book of Revelation. So, after these things, something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Hallelujah, again, in the Greek and Hebrew, it's the same word, literally means praise you Yahweh or Yahweh be praised. It's hallelujah, which means to praise, and Yah, which is short for Yahweh, the proper name of God the Father. Okay, Yah is a short form of Yahweh. Uh, it doesn't mean praise the Lord. Have you ever heard that? Hallelujah means praise the Lord. That's not what it means. The reason why they say that is Yahweh in your Old Testament, it's called the Tetragrammaton. It's Y-H-W-H. -H. That's the proper name of God the Father. Jesus' proper name is what? Yeshua. Okay, different. Okay, they have different names. Yeshua is Jesus Christ. Yahweh, some people say what? Jehovah, but there's no J sound in Hebrew, is God the Father's proper name. It doesn't mean God. That's actually his name. But in your Old Testament, if you ever see Lord in all capitals, have you ever seen it in the Old Testament as you're reading through it? That is Yahweh. It's a bad translation. The reason they did that is Jews will not write the name of God the Father, Yahweh. So they write Y-H-W-H, -H, just the consonants, and uh, then the English translators just translated it Lord in all capitals. But every time you see that, and you can read about it probably in the front of your Bible. It'll say, when you see Lord in all caps, it's actually Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton. Okay. It really means praise the Father. Yes, so it literally means uh, Yahweh be praised or praise you Yahweh. Yeah. Mm-hmm, yep, yeah. And it's only used four times in Scripture, and it's all in Revelation chapter 19. And it's pronounced the same in every language. Verse 2, we've made it to verse 2. Hallelujah, we're moving. <laughs> because his judgments are true and righteous, and he has judged the great harlot. Who's that? We talked about it last week. China. Past two weeks. <laughs> That's Babylon, right? 
Okay, whoever Babylon is in the end times, that's the great harlot, corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of the bondservants on her. An angel declares the same thing when God's wrath is being poured out on the Antichrist back in Revelation chapter 16. The angel says the same exact thing. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous are you <clears throat> who are and who were, O holy one, because you judge these things. For they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, almighty and true, righteous are your judgments. So all the judgments that God pours out, the wrath that we won't be here for, we're going to be raptured and taken out. Everyone deserves what God pours out on them. His judgments are true and right. They will be evil to the core. Babylon must have gotten really bad because Revelation chapter 19, verse 3, the next verse in our text. And a second time they said, hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. Obviously hyperbole because this heaven and earth will be destroyed. Her smoke can't go up forever and ever. And 24 elders and four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen. Again, hallelujah. Yahweh be praised. God the Father be praised. By the way, you heard Scott's comment. He thinks China is going to be Babylon. Maybe. Who knows? Revelation 19.5. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great, Praise service is over, and the marriage supper of the Lamb is about to take place. So it's interesting. We have the Bema seat. We immediately go into this worship service, worshiping God with the 24 elders and the four living creatures and myriads upon myriads of angels and multitudes that no one can count of raptured saints that begin to worship God together. Can you imagine how beautiful that's going to be? Wow. Oh my goodness. And now we go from the worship service to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is a literal supper with food, with wine, and with wedding clothes. It's going to be, the, and dancing, the greatest celebration ever. So the order of the events, rapture, the beam of seat judgment, that's where you get your rewards, or wood, hay, and stubble, and you're saved anyway. The worship service, praise service, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus takes back the world. After that, the blowing of the seventh trumpet. While we're in heaven, he becomes king of the earth again, but not king of kings and lord of lords till later. The second coming of Christ, the battle of Armageddon, Antichrist and the false prophet thrown in the lake of fire. And Christ then receives the kingdom from God the Father and becomes king of kings and lord of lords. And we're going to read all the verses that establish this this morning, so again, the timeline, to put it into perspective, there it goes. Does the timeline help you? Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, that's that. All right, so PowerPoint's being slow. Revelation 19.6, we're moving forward in our text. Then I heard something like a voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. 
oh, what a beautiful time. Now we have finished our praise service. You can imagine how awesome that's going to be. Um, and the church has made ourselves ready. Uh, Ephesians 5.25, Husband, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her. And what does it mean to be sanctified? To be washed, cleansed, and set apart for exclusive use by and for God. Having washed her in the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. And finally, the church, through persecution that takes place in the first half of that last seven years, has become a holy and blameless, unified body of Christ. You know, Jesus prayed, Father, make them one, all the churches, all the people in the churches, exactly as you and I are one. And now the, the church of Christ is fragmented. There's something like 2,000 different denominations, and they don't really get along. But at this time, all, all of us will have made ourselves ready, and the bride has made ourselves ready. The next verse tells us the clothes we get, Revelation 19.8. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. That is a toga. Make no mistake about it. Paul is writing, or John is writing at this time, everybody wore togas. Fine linen, bright and clean, though, were hard to come by. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Hmm. You know, every good deed you do right now is being woven into the fabric of the clothes you will wear for eternity. I want you to think about that. That the righteous acts of the saints literally will become your clothes. Hmm. Most of us are concerned about how we look and what we wear. You know, it's people judge you by your outward appearance. Is that right? I mean, they do. They shouldn't. But the clothes you wear, if I came in my fire department uniform with my badge, you would think I was a fireman. People always do. Um, whatever clothing you wear, that's how people know you. Is that kind of how it goes? Well, your righteous acts are being woven together into a garment that you will wear for eternity. Isaiah 61.10 says this. I love this. I rejoice greatly in, oh, Lord in all caps. What does that mean? Yahweh. Yahweh that's the tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H. My soul will exalt in my God, for he has clothed me, note this, with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me in a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself uh, with garland and as a bride adorns herself with fine jewels. So it's interesting that throughout the Bible, the symbolism of being clothed in righteousness, clothed in salvation is out there. So we'll literally get a toga, but the, it's symbolically going to represent the righteous acts of the saints, if that makes sense. Toga party, it's going to be beautiful. It's not going to be just this mundane gown. I only found one picture that was uh, somewhat not risque that I could put up here. But I mean, it's going to be beautiful. It's, it's going to be amazing, the clothes we wear for eternity. It's not going to be just weird. Uh, Revelation 3, 5, one of the promises to the churches, he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. Revelation 19, 8 in our text, and it will be given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then the raptured saints in Revelation 7, 9, great multitude that no one can count from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, raptured up off the earth, are clothed in white robes. Okay, so we all get those white garments. 
Remember, it's the Father's kingdom until after the marriage supper of the Lamb and the second coming. Let me give you a verse. Matthew 26, 29. Jesus, after giving the disciples communion, he says this. Revelation 26, 29. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine, the wine, from now on until that day when I drink it new with you, where? In my Father's kingdom. So at the rapture, God the Father is still King of kings and Lord of lords. We're at the marriage supper, and the Father is about to give the Son at the second coming the whole kingdom, the whole thing. And I'm going to give you the verse where it happens and exactly the timing of when it happens. While they were uh, going away, Matthew 25, 10, to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went to, uh, with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Speaking of the rapture, remember, that's the parable of the ten virgins. Five were wise, five were foolish. How come the wise ones made it? Do you remember the parable? They had extra oil to endure till the midnight hour, but the foolish one said, oh no, he'll come at sunset as the first star appears in the sky when most bridegrooms come to take their bride home. Well, no, he waited till the midnight hour, and that is, uh, yeah, kind of all of that. All right. So remember the first miracle Christ did. It was at a wedding. He turned water into wine, exactly. And on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. But Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. They ran out of wine, and Jesus turned water into wine. The head waiter said, Wow, every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, he serves the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Probably the wine, the vintage they drank, is what we're going to drink in heaven at the marriage supper of the Lamb. I really believe that, because Jesus said, I won't drink it again with you until I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom, which is right after the rapture, which is kind of cool. Back to the text, Revelation 19.9. And he said to me, Right, blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Who's invited to the, the marriage supper? Yeah, a- anyone who receives Jesus Christ, right? Okay, all of those are invited. But remember what Jesus said about it, Matthew 22, 2. The kingdom of heaven must be compared uh, to, uh, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to who gave a wedding feast for his son, to a king who gave his wedding feast to the son. Sorry, I didn't get it in there. And he sent out the slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to go. Speaking of the Jews, they were the chosen people. Messiah came, and they did not receive him. They rejected him for the most part. Many did receive Christ. Many of the Pharisees came to know the Lord, and the early church was made up primarily of Jews. But... The Sadducees did not receive Christ as Messiah. The Pharisees probably did. Sadducees, and thus their name, Sadducee, uh, didn't receive Christ. But they were the ones invited. So then he said later, Matthew 22, 8, then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited are not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and note this, as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. And that's what we do when we proclaim the gospel. We're inviting people to the wedding feast. All you have to do is receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Your sins will be forgiven, and you will go to this feast. Go out into the highways. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. 
And that's why angels rejoice in heaven when one sinner repents. So that's what we're doing now. But it's interesting. 2 Peter 3, 9, talking about anyone who will, says this, The Lord is not slow about his promise. What's the promise in, in context? The rapture of the church. His coming to take us home. He's not slow about that, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing that any perish, but all come to repentance. God wants everybody to come to repentance. It's his will that the whole world would be saved. How come we're not? I have a question. Yeah. You know, um, the wedding uh, feast and they, the people don't show up, so they go and they find all the other people. But then one is not dressed correctly and he gets thrown out. We're going to talk about that. Okay. Yeah, we're going <laughs> to. Good one. You jumped ahead of me. I'm sorry. Yeah, so one dude that, that made it wasn't ready for the wedding, so, but we're going to get there. Okay. Uh, is anyone cold? The temperature, yeah. you all right? Scott, you want to just turn it up to like whatever? Second Peter, uh, oh, so God, it's God's will that everyone believes, but some will harden their hearts and not believe. That's free will, and that's what we talked about last week in apologetics. First Timothy 2.3, it says, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. The word desire there in the Greek literally is athelo, and it means this. To will, to have in mind, to intend, to be resolved or determined or purposed to do something. It is God's will, make no mistake about it, that all men come to the knowledge of the truth and receive Jesus Christ. But because of free will, many will not. All right, so continuing on, John 12, 32. If I be lifted up, Christ said, I'll draw all men to myself. But then they have a choice. Receive the free gift of grace or reject it. So back to the invitation. Who's invited? Everybody's invited. Only those that receive the invitation and accept it will go up in the rapture. And that's receiving Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Again, he desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So, I'm skipping a few. One. Acts 10.34 makes it clear. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. He doesn't choose some and not others. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Even if the whole nation... Nation is destined for wrath, like Babylon of the end times. Uh, that nation will be destroyed, but individuals within that nation, if they fear God and does what is right, which is having faith in Jesus Christ, they will be invited to the wedding supper. But Angie, you are right. Some people did not have their wedding garments. And so Matthew twenty-two eleven. but when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into outer darkness. And that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what are the wedding garments? We read about it in Revelation 19. It's the white togas that we're going to get for eternity. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. And the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now we need to define that because this is pretty important. This man didn't make it. He's going to be tormented because he didn't have his wedding garment on, and the wedding garment is the righteous acts of the saints. 
In the armor of God, what's our breastplate? Righteousness. righteousness. Breastplate of righteousness, right? So Paul clarifies what that is. And, and we read it here in Ephesians 6.14. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. See you later, McKenna. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And what is that? Paul clearly tells us. What is the righteousness that we need to be doing? Yeah. First Thessalonians 5.8. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. So here he clarifies what righteousness is. It's simple. Righteousness is faith plus love. That's it. That's our garment for eternity. That's our toga. To get to the marriage feast raptured up, you have to be known by your faith and love. It's the uniform we put on every day, as well with the armor of God. It's what people see when they look at you. Faith, it's really simple. Uh, Romans 4, 2, And Abraham was justified, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God had faith and it was credited to him as righteousness. Okay, so number one, it's faith. We're saved by faith, by faith alone. But once we're saved, then we have to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love our neighbor as ourselves. John 13, 34, Christ said, A new command I give you, that you should love one another even as I have loved you, that you should also love one another. And 1335, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. So that's what they see. And that's part of the criteria to get your wedding garment for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Faith and love. And 1 John 318, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. So we know this. It's very simple. All we need to do is love one another and have faith in God, and that makes up the garment that gets us into the wedding feast and keeps us there. Scott? So that how did he get into the feast in the first place if he didn't have the right garment? Uh, that, that was hyperbolic. Um, so he, remember, a parable is a true-to-life story reflecting a significant spiritual or theological truth. It's not a true story but a true-to-life story that reflects a deep theological or spiritual truth. So in, in this, since they were already on the earth and just invited whoever would to come to the wedding feast, um, in, in the true-to-life story, if he found one without the garments, he was kicked out. The garment is, we know, faith and love, and in the real one, we're going to be raptured out, and we'll already know if we have faith and love because only those with faith and love will go up. So no one will go up in the rapture who shouldn't be there, if that makes sense. Yeah. Right. Isn't the fact that righteousness is defined as faith and love in the Bible another indication that we're saved by faith? Yes. Because that's the righteousness that we get, which is accepting. It doesn't say accepting Christ. Yeah. But that's, that is accepting Christ. That's your faith. Exactly. Faith and love. So yep. without faith, you don't get the garment. Right. Yes. Yep. Amen. So uh, what Mike said for those online, if you can hear him, is that uh, the garment we get is faith and that's salvation. So really righteousness is through the act of faith imputed to us from Jesus Christ. 
<laughs> Revelation 19.10. So John's given all this great vision of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And for some reason, again, he falls down to the angel giving him the message and wants to worship him. Then I fell at the feet of him, but he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What did we learn by that? Again, only God deserves our worship, adoration, not men, not Mary, not angels, not anyone else. Only God deserves worship. Mm. So back to the text, second coming. Revelation 19.11. And I saw heaven opened up, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he or crowns, and is, has a name on, written on him which no one knows except him himself. Okay. Remember, we get that name written on us, but this is the glorified Christ. Remember when Jesus first came, he came as the suffering servant. The Jews were expecting the glorified Christ, the victor, the one who would throw off all rule and establish his kingdom on the earth. But now he comes, the second coming, as the victorious Messiah, the one the Jews looked at for the first coming but couldn't find. And very soon after this second coming, he will be king of kings and lord of lords at his coronation. Remember, Jesus gets a name that no one knows, and that name is written on us, which is kind of cool, Revelation uh, 3.12. He who overcomes, I'll make a pillar, etc. I'll write the name of my God, Yahweh, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, at the end of the verse, which comes down out of heaven, and my new name that no one knows. Okay, so we're going to get that name, whatever it is. Why does no one know it? We do not know. <laughs> uh, it doesn't say. So, verse 13 of Revelation 19. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. So, two theories on the robe dipped in blood. Either it's his blood as high priest that he makes atonement for us before the Father as our high priest and mediator between God and man, or it's the blood of the wrath that he poured out after he took possession of the earth, the seventh trumpet, and that blood, some of it got on his robe symbolically. Okay, the blood of the wrath that has the, uh, been poured out on the earth. We know this about his name is the word of God. John chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the word, the logos. What it literally means is logic, the universal rationale, the ability to understand, speak, and um, uh, yeah, analyze a word. Um, it's a lot more than just simply word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. Uh, John 1, 12, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be the children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, but the will of man, but of God. And the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. So we know the word of God is a reference to who he is, the universal rationale of God. Okay. Who is Jesus at the second coming? He is our high priest. He is mediator between God and man, and he's the Jewish Messiah. All the Jews that were taken to the wilderness and protected during the last half of the 70th week of Daniel, 
He will come as their Messiah, not King of Kings Lord and Lord of Lords yet. Okay, that's right at the second coming. All right. Who is with Jesus when he comes? Revelation 19, 14. And the armies uh, which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Think about this. In context, it's got to be us. The church was just given the fine garments, white and clean. We're going to be riding horses through the universe with Christ to the earth at the second coming. Wow. That's going to be pretty cool. I don't know about you, but I think, I wonder if we get cowboy hats. I don't know. And from his mouth comes a sharp uh, sword so that he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Because right after that, he slays the nations. Verse 15, he's coronated by God the Father. And I'm going to give you the verses that establish that in a second. When does Christ become king? Jesus right now we know is our priest, and he's the Jews' Messiah. In fact, Hebrews 6.12, when Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, we know, was also a king, priest and king. Hebrews 7.24, but Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it is fitting to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And again, like Melchizedek, Hebrews 7.1, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. So Christ then, at the second coming, after he destroys the Antichrist and the false prophet, will become king of kings and lord of lords. It's the coronation. He becomes king of the world, though, at the seventh trumpet. Let's just read it again. Uh, Revelation eleven fifteen. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there was loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Okay. So he takes back the world at the blowing of the seventh trumpet, but he doesn't get the heavenly kingdom, God's kingdom, till after he destroys the Antichrist at the second coming. So again, the timeline, we have all these events. Here's where he takes back the earth and it becomes his because right here and even now, it's Satan's. And he gets it back at the blowing of the seventh trumpet. At the second coming, he'll destroy the Antichrist and the false prophet and God will give him the kingdom. So what happens to God at that point then? God will be just as they are equal, but uh, subservient. There is a voluntary hierarchy. Christ will now be over the Father. Yeah. Uh, and then in Corinthians, it says, then when he puts his final enemies uh, under his feet, and that's at the white throne judgment, he throws death and Hades into cell, hell. In Corinthians, it says, then he gives the kingdom back to God the Father for eternity. So God the Father will then be King of kings and Lord of lords on the new earth in the new Jerusalem after the final judgment. So Christ only is king of king and Lord of lords for a thousand years. It's the thousand year reign of Christ when the Father gives it to him. All right. Second coming in Armageddon, the, the two suppers. You know, we had our marriage supper, the lamb, and now God at the battle of Armageddon is going to slay so many people that their bodies will be 
the supper for birds, Revelation 19:17. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him, Jesus Christ, who sat on the horse and against his army. When did they do that? After the sixth bowl of wrath at the end of the 70th week of Daniel, Revelation 16, 13. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. Verse 14. And the spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. That is Armageddon. Okay. So Armageddon, Revelation 16, 16. And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har-Mageddon. It's a great valley. Uh, to the north of Jerusalem. They fought many battles there. Jude 1.14 talks about the second coming as well. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. That's when we come back with our white robes on white horses. To execute judgment, Jude 1.15, upon all, and to convince all that are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed and of all the hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So back to Revelation 16, he gathered them to a place called in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. Okay, that's at the second coming. So Revelation 19:20. back to our text. And the beast was seized. This is at the second coming after the battle of Armageddon is complete. And with him, the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. No one right now is in hell. No one in the lake of fire. The Antichrist and the false prophet are going to be the first people to be thrown in the lake of fire. Where are all the souls that have sinned against God held right now? It's called Sheol, and it's a holding place somewhere, but it's, they are not thrown into hell till the white throne judgment at the end of the millennial reign. And then Satan and all his demons are thrown into hell. They're not in hell now. In fact, no one is in hell right now. But the Antichrist and the false prophet will be the first two souls to be thrown into the lake of fire. And the rest were killed with the sword, which came out of the mouth of him who sets on the horse, and all the birds were filled to their flesh. Not a literal sword. Jesus is going to speak the word, and they will be wiped out. Uh, it's not like he has a sword coming out of his mouth. Again, that's symbolic. All right. Uh, Scott said it could be like Russia's uh, new, is it Russia? China? China's new, uh, no, I said it. Russia. <laughs> oh, Russia has this sound weapon. You know, maybe he says it so forcefully, it's like a sound weapon. I don't know. Okay, Daniel will tell us when exactly this happens and when Jesus becomes King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Daniel chapter 7, starting at verse 9. And I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, speaking of Yahweh, God the Father. His vesture was like white snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames, its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing 
And coming out from before him, thousands upon thousands were attending him. Myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court set and the books were opened. The court is the 24 elders that surround the throne of God right now. That's the heavenly court. Verse 11. Then I kept looking at the sound of the boastful words which the horn, the Antichrist, was speaking. And I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. When does that happen? When is the Antichrist thrown into the lake of fire? We just read it in Revelation. Right after the second coming, the battle of Armageddon, then the Antichrist and beast are thrown, the false prophet, into the lake of fire. As for the rest of the beasts, those that didn't take the mark, their dominion was taken away because Christ is establishing his kingdom. But an extension of life was granted to them for a appointed period of time. Christ will reign all over all those that didn't take the mark of the beast in the millennial reign. will reign with them and the Jews that were protected in the wilderness. Keep going at Daniel. Verse uh, 13, the next verse. And I kept looking in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven, one like the son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days, God the father, and was presented before him. And to him, speaking of the Son of Man, Jesus, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. All right. So again, the timeline. Oh, that's a different timeline I put together. So we have the second coming, Armageddon, Antichrist, false prophet, judged and destroyed. Jesus coronated as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I mean, we just read exactly when that happens. He goes to the Mount of Olives then and establishes his kingdom. He sets foot on the uh, Mount of Olives. It splits in half, and I'll give you the verse in a second. And then he will reign on this earth for a thousand years. We'll reign with him. At the end of the thousand years is the great glorious white throne judgment when everybody will be judged except the church. And they'll be judged by their deeds, not faith. And then the new heaven, new earth, Christ throws his last enemy in, death and Hades. And he gives all the kingdom back to God the Father. And then we spend eternity on the new earth and the new heaven. Any questions on that? And there is a possibility that people that think that they're good people, uh, so to speak, and are going to be judged by their words in the second coming. There is a possibility. Uh, Romans chapter 2. Let's just go there really quick. I would rather, instead of speaking, I'm just going to read what the Bible clearly tells us regarding that. Romans chapter 2, starting at verse 11. Romans 2, verse 11. For there is no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. That verse simply says this. There are those that never hear the law, but do instinctively the things of the law. They will be judged on how they did that by their deeds. 
So the judgment, the great white throne judgment, those people are judged by their deeds. And apparently, when we get to Revelation 22, we'll talk about this more in depth. But there's nations on the new earth for eternity that are not part of the church. So they're not in hell. Who are those nations? They're not Christians. All the Christians live in the New Jerusalem, 1,500 miles long, wide, and high. It has to be these that didn't hear the law, but obeyed the law that God placed in their heart, and they will be judged on how they obeyed that law. And they're going to live on the new earth, not the new earth. On the new earth. Not and the new earth. they won't have immortality. Only we get that because they will need the leaves of the tree of life for healing somehow. They'll bring their glory to the new Jerusalem uh, once a year. Uh, so in Revelation 22, 21 and 22, we're going to talk deep about this because uh, this is radical because uh, Orthodox Christianity says the only way you can avoid hell is through faith in Christ. Okay, Romans chapter 2 just gave us a different story. Plus, we're going to look at all the judgments and the sheep and the goats. We're not either of those. Remember, they're judged by their works, and some are going to be sheep that make it to the new earth that form the nations on the new earth that are not part of the church, the bride of Christ. So we're going to talk deep about this in two weeks. But even if they're right and they're saved by their works, they're not going to have Well, they're not they're saved. Not, they're not going to be immortal. Well, and they're not saved. They're not immortal. They'll never go to heaven. They'll never inherit the kingdom of God. They're never imputed righteous. So all of that stuff is, is all of that. Yeah. So what happens after Christ's coronation? He goes to Zion, the Mount of Olives, and establishes his millennial kingdom on earth. And Zechariah 14.4 describes it. So, from, so, so let's put it all together. Christ fights the battle of Armageddon. They're wiped out. The Antichrist and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire, right? Then God the Father, the court sets, and he is now appointed King of kings and Lord of lords, given the kingdom... Christ then goes to the Mount of Olives and now will start his millennial thousand-year reign as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. His feet will stand that day on the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives uh, will split in the midst thereof toward the east and to the west. And there shall be a great valley, and half of the mountain shall be removed toward the north, and half will be removed towards the south. And in chapters 11, 1 through 13, John is taken back to the beginning of the 70th week and talks about the temple mount that the Antichrist will go in to commit the abomination of desolation. So here's a view of the temple mount. The Mount of Olives would be over here to your right. This is the Kidron Valley right here to the left. And the eastern gate where Messiah will go through is that gate you can barely see it just uh, past the Dome of the Rock, which is an Islamic thing. So, if we look at it, one Israeli archaeologist, Asher Kaufman, uncovered convincing evidence that the Dome of the Rock does not set on the original place of the temple. When we were there starting the Bible College for uh, Calvary Chapel, I actually pasted it out. That's the Eastern Gate. They have it cemented in because... They knew the Jews thought when Messiah comes, he's going to enter through that gate. Well, Christ, second coming, battle of Armageddon, coronated king of kings, will enter through that gate. It will burst open for him and actually probably be remade. All right. There we have an aerial, and here is the eastern gate right here. 
And here's where the temple, literally now the palace, where Jesus Christ will reign for a thousand years on this earth, will be built right next to the Dome of the Rock. One artist rendering um, did that. And there is room. And remember, in Revelation 11, when they measured the outer court, they said, leave that for the Gentiles. It's going to be trodden down by them for uh, 42 months. And that would be the artist's rendering of the rebuilt temple where Christ is going to reign on this earth for a thousand years. There's another one. Dome of the Rock will be wiped out by then. Next week, we're going to find out everything about the millennial kingdom of uh, millennial reign of Christ from this point on in Revelation chapter 20. So, Pastor Brent, yes, it will the aging stop through that uh, thousand years. It, it's interesting for us, we'll never age again, but for those that make it through the wrath of God, never took the mark of the beast, it says, uh. Someone at 500 years old will be considered young. So the earth is going to go back the way it was at the Garden of Eden. Now think about this. From the Garden of Eden, the earth was probably all tropical. Uh, they, they find palm trees buried under, you know, 200 feet of ice uh, in the Antarctica, you know, tropical paradise. Um, so the earth will go back to that. And people lived a long time back then. You know, uh, Methuselah lived 900 years. Uh, Noah lived 600 years. So during the millennial reign, it's going to return back to that beautiful paradise. Um, we're going to talk about it next week, but the lion will lay down with the lamb. The child will be able to play at the cobra's den. It is going to be amazing for a thousand years on this earth. Just, just beautiful. So Revelation 20 next week. But for today, uh, the question God would ask us all are, are you getting your toga ready? The toga is the righteous acts of the saints for that great toga wedding feast party we're going to have in heaven after the rapture. And remember, the toga is simply this, faith and love. It's righteousness, which the Bible defines as faith and love. If you have complete faith in Jesus Christ, if you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, and love one another even as Christ loved us, man, your toga is going to be bright and clean. Uh, amen. And we're all invited. We already read all the verses. want to end with this, Psalm 103.1, a psalm of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities. I want you to ponder that. Whatever sin you've committed, you're forgiven this morning by the blood of Jesus Christ who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to his children's children. God loves you this morning. We're cleansed and forgiven by the blood of Christ. And man, I tell you what, we want to be ready for that toga party in heaven. Uh, it is going to be the most amazing event you could imagine. Anything on this earth will fail in comparison to what that event's going to be after the rapture of the church. I look forward to that day. Amen.
Next week, we'll talk about the millennial reign. And all it takes is faith and love. If you need prayer, I'll be out there to pray with you. But let's sing the song to the Lord. Sun restores my soul, satisfies my need. Thank you for listening to Staying the Course with Pastor Brett Peterson. If you would like a copy of this message or would like to submit a prayer request or comment, contact us at 949-888-5777 or email us at info at ccbcu.edu. God bless you as you seek and serve him. Remember, stay the course, and we'll see you next week.